Would you please take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Luke chapter 23, trying to finish out the chapter this morning. In really this chief and suspenseful moment, difficult as it may be, it is really one that the gospel has been building to. Really, we'll find out in the weeks ahead that Luke's gospel climaxes in the resurrection. But for the new reader, or maybe the unfamiliar reader, this is a suspenseful moment. This moment we come to in Luke 23. We'll be in verses 44 through 56, Jesus' death and burial. And we've been waiting for this moment. We've been waiting to see what happens in this moment. Because Jesus has made all these claims. He's made claims of deity. And Luke has painted him in this picture as as being the Son of God who heals the sick and casts out the demons and, and teaches like nobody else and performs wonders and signs and miracles like nobody else. He can calm the sea. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead and do all these sorts of things. And, and all of a sudden, we've been thrust into this moment in Jesus' life where He's been falsely accused and wrongfully condemned and handed over to Gentiles. And we've been waiting to see what happens. Is He really going to die How can that be? And as a matter of fact, we come to realize if we're putting ourselves in the unfamiliar shoes, we come to realize today he does actually die. There's no escape route. Some of our most favorite movie genres have these built in escapes, don't they? Where everything builds to this suspenseful moment where the character, the the main character is going to get caught. Maybe they're a spy or or uh, in in the military, or in war, or something, and they're about to be caught, and then all of a sudden there's a way of escape, and and perhaps in our mind we're reading that way. Jesus is arrested, He's going to the cross, but surely there's going to be this escape route. And it becomes painfully clear to us today, Luke has no intention of providing an escape route. Jesus has no way out of this mess. He actually willfully, voluntarily goes and dies. Today's text is about our Lord's last breath and his body being sealed in a tomb. And Luke's purpose in writing verses 44 through 56 is just simply without very much commentary at all. In fact, he provides very little commentary. He simply desires to relate to us how our Lord died. Building upon his whole work previous in this gospel, he wants us to know how Jesus died. And in relating those details, he he wants us to see, number one, that Jesus was true in all of his predictions. He was right in all of his predictions that he is going to lay down his life, that he is going to destroy this temple and in three days raise it again, that everything Jesus said about himself and everything said about Jesus, Isaiah 53 in particular, is accurate. Uh, Also, secondly, he wants us to see in the details of our Lord's death That Jesus is righteous. And that God is over and over and over again confirming His innocence and confirming His righteousness. And thirdly, Luke, in relating these details, wants us to see that Jesus' mission is accomplished. His mission of redemption. For Luke, in relating the details of the Lord's death, he's relating to us the fulfillment of everything that Christ has said about Himself. Jesus isn't fulfilled in the escape route. Jesus' mission and purpose and teachings 
They don't come to fruition in evading the cross or saving himself from the cross as he's mocked, but instead in actually dying. And in dying, Luke would have us to see that everything Jesus has claimed and said about himself, that he's the Savior, the Redeemer, Luke chapter 4, he's, he's the sent servant who's proclaiming liberty to the captives, all of that is fulfilled actually here in his death. So let's look in verse 44 of Luke 23. <clears throat> we'll read this historical account and its details and then come back and begin to walk through it. Verse 44. Luke writes and he says, It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is a difficult text because we have multiple emotions rising up within us. At least I would assume we would. We have some emotions of distraughtness or, or just difficulty. This is a hard to swallow, hard to reconcile, hard to wrestle with. And then at the same time, there's emotions of thankfulness and joy because we know why Christ gave up his life. Those are what the those are the details that Luke includes to convey to us that very thing. We know why Christ gave up his life. We begin in verses 44 and 45 <clears throat> looking at these divine confirmations, these these theologically significant events taking place. By Luke's description, we are now found in verse 44, observing Jesus on the cross at about noon. That's the sixth hour, according to the way the Jews structured their time frame, their day. Your Bible translation should have several footnotes at the bottom to describe what the sixth hour and the ninth hour means. It's about noon, and that means Jesus' crucifixion and trial and all of that has uh, promptly happened and hastily been conducted and completed. In fact, for the Lord, by this time, it's been a whirlwind of a night and a morning, hasn't it? False accusations, uh, false witnesses, being shuffled back and forth between different judges, and finally wrongfully condemned. And all that before lunchtime. 
And now He's holy and completely strung up on the cross. And as the noon hour begins to pass through, this divine supernatural event takes place. The sky goes dark. And light is removed. In verse 45, Luke describes it as the sun is failing. Its light fails. And that event that's happening in this natural, visible, physical realm, that event lasts for about three hours to the ninth hour, which your Bible footnote again will tell you is around roughly 3 p.m. So for three hours, while Jesus is strung up on the cross, it's dark. Now, every astronomer will tell you, whether they're a believer or not, that an eclipse that lasts three hours is impossible. So they rule out natural things that might explain this, and that leaves us to conclude there's only one supernatural thing that can explain this moment of divine darkness at the crucifixion of Christ, and that's God. God is making the light disappear. Because the hour of darkness is here, as Jesus foretold. And God's judgment is being poured out. There is no occasion for light in this moment. It's this supernatural and divine confirmation and declaration from nature itself. Nature is testifying that the death of this man on the cross, in the middle cross, is not like any other crucifixion. And his death is not like any other death. There's something else happening here. Something deeper. In fact, the sun's light failing and nature's testimony here is only a foretaste of the unseen things that are really taking place on the cross. You think it's dark right here with the sun's light failing. Imagine what's taking place as Jesus drinks in the wrath of God for sin. The other theologically significant event that takes place is in verse 45. This other divine confirmation. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. In Matthew's account and Mark's account, we're told that it's torn in two from top to bottom. That's a divine moment. Where God rips this curtain in the temple to signify and symbolize something very, very important. Now, none of the gospel writers actually tell us which curtain in the temple is torn. There are many within the temple complex. Two of the most significant ones are the outer curtain and the inner curtain. The outer curtain separates the common place, as we could call it, from the holy place, the place where only Jewish males could go, 13 and older. Uh, That's the holy place. Only Jewish males are allowed in that area to do the things of their faith. There's a second curtain called the inner curtain, and it's the place, the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And that's the place that only the high priest can go, and he can only go there once a year during the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of Israel. It's the place that is 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, a perfect square where the glory of God is said to dwell. It's where the Ark of the Covenant would have sat. Now, none of the gospel writers tell us which curtain they have in mind when they report that the curtain is torn. Most New Testament scholars lean towards the inner curtain being torn because it 
bears the most significance, at least in their mind. Because if the inner curtain is torn, that means we now have access to God. Beautiful picture, isn't it? And make no mistake, that is very much taking place. Christ dying on the cross is making access to God for us. But I think Luke might intend the outer curtain when he talks about the curtain of the temple being torn. I think he means that by the words that he uses. The outer curtain was the more visible curtain. And it represented the temple at large or the temple proper. In fact, if it would have been torn while Christ was on the cross, everybody could have seen it. It didn't matter if you were male or female, Jew or Gentile. And if it represents the temple proper, the temple at large, essentially what God is saying to us is that this temple and its sacrificial system is now no longer needed. Which means that Christ hasn't just secured for us access to God, but relationship with God by making us all righteous. If you will, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Because the author of Hebrews makes this very point. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, a rather lengthy section of Scripture, but good for our reading this morning. Let's read from verse 1. The writer says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered these sacrifices? Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, quote, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, quote, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, Jeremiah 31, 33, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, verse 34, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's a commentary on what is happening here in Luke 23 with Christ on the cross. Christ's sacrificial death, substitutionary atonement on our behalf, means the temple and its sacrificial system is no longer needed. That we are now forgiven of sins. And our lawless deeds are remembered no more. And where that kind of forgiveness lasts, permanent, eternal forgiveness, there's therefore no longer any needs for sacrifice. God is making a astounding declaration here while Christ is dying on the cross. He makes the sun fail and the light go dark and He rips the curtain in the temple to say there is no longer any need for sacrifices. Christ is sufficient. This is a divine death. And in that divine death, He is all you need to not only come before God, but have relationship with God. You don't need uh, the blood of bulls and goats, which can't do anything for you. You need Jesus, which can make you righteous now to enter into any part of the temple. To meet with God in any place at any time. You and I, we don't need our Bible reading and our prayer time and our evangelism and all those good works which we should be doing, all our spiritual disciplines which we should be doing. We don't need those things to make us right before God. We have Christ. He is sufficient. And so God confirms this death and and what's taking place behind the scenes with these two very visible declarations. Stopping the sun's light. Tearing the curtain of the temple. Sin has now been atoned for once for all. Oh church, this is no ordinary event, is it? This is Christ bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And Luke would not have us read it. God would not have us read about it as any ordinary event. Much is taking place here. Jesus is standing between us and the wrath of God. Satisfying the justice of God. That we might be brought to God. Verse 46, we find a sequence word, as I'm calling it. The word then. Then Jesus. After these two visible signs take place, divine confirmation. Then Jesus speaks In Luke's account, it's his final words from the cross. He calls out with a loud voice. He cries out. He musters all the energy and all the breath he can. And he cries out a quote from Psalm 31.5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31 is a psalm about trusting God in the midst of hardship, suffering, and difficulty. Christ, with his last prayer, last final words in Luke's account, utters a prayer of trust and submission to God. The resolve that we witnessed in the garden to do the will of the Father is still being exemplified here in this prayer of faith. 
as death draws near and approaches and crawls up the spine of Christ, he's found trusting in God at peace with the will of the Father. As darkness seemingly swallows him up and he enters into the grave, he's found trusting in God. And then Luke, as all the evangelists do, in a very straightforward, matter-of-fact way, writes, having said this, he breathed his last. No commentary, no added emphasis, no extra language. Very straightforward, he breathed his last. By verse 47, Jesus is dead. It's this strange moment in the Bible. One of the strangest. Really, it's a theological conundrum. For the only time in all of Scripture, in all of eternity... The Son of God is dead. His cry that he quotes from Psalm 31 is very important. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's, that's not some form of disembodied uh, death where his spirit is separated from his body. When he uses the word spirit there, he means my whole self. Into your hands I commit my whole being, my my whole self. But he uses this word pneuma. It's the word for spirit. P-N-E-U-M-A. I believe it is. Pneuma. And then when he comes and he says. Luke writes. He breathed his last. The word for breathed. Is the variant form for the word spirit. Pneuma. Luke is being very clear to us. In his use of language. When Christ offers up his spirit. Having said that, he then breathes his last. It's this picture that Luke's painting that Jesus breathes out his spirit into the hands of God, which echoes and implies John 10. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And he doesn't die a second before he wills his death. He doesn't die a second before he allows, allows his death. He dies precisely... When he gives death permission. And when he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He allows his life to be taken. He lays down his life. What Luke is telling you and I is that this death of Jesus in verse 46, so condensed down in verse 46. It's the same thing he's been telling us throughout the whole passion narrative. It is completely voluntary. It's his choice. Jesus is not forced to the grave. Jesus is not forced to the cross. Jesus doesn't have his life ripped from him. He's not robbed of his life. He willfully, consciously chooses to die. He Lays down his life for us. Yet again, we're reminded this is no ordinary death. 
Not only is the sky bearing witness, not only is the torn uh, temple curtain bearing witness, but the very voice and actions of Jesus are bearing witness. This is no ordinary crucifixion. This man willfully gives up his life for us. It is very much so a substitutionary atonement. Where though he didn't have to and deserve to, he dies the death we deserve. This is a monumental moment. His last words as Luke records them speak volumes. Well, his life is gone by verse 47 when another character enters in to the scene. This character has no name. He's simply known by his title, his rank, his position. He's a centurion in the Roman army, an officer, a soldier. When he sees what has taken place, he praises God. It is the immediate effect of the cross. Where this Gentile soldier stands in direct contrast to the crowd around him in verse 48 and 49. There's still a crowd gathered around Jesus. And apparently, very quickly after Jesus breathes his last, this centurion sees something the, the crowd doesn't see. His eyes are opened for him. The crowd in verses 48 and 49, they, they see things. They, they see the signs that accompany Jesus' death. But those signs don't yield faith for them. They only yield confusion and grief. How often have we encountered people who come to Jesus and say, show me by, by your signs who you are and then I'll believe. Perform some work so that I might believe in you. Even the mockers who are around Jesus mock with the very same thing. I'm only going to believe in you if you take yourself down from the cross. Well, that depicts this crowd. Verse 48, the crowds that had assembled for this, aspect, this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they responded very differently from the centurion. They returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. Everybody around is taken up with the signs. This centurion is not. By God's grace, he sees Jesus. While everybody else doesn't know how to respond, this man is found praising God. And we have to remember this must go against every inclination he has as a Roman soldier who has seen perhaps hundreds or thousands of people crucified. He knows what to think about a, a criminal crucified. They're the lowest of the low, they're enemies of the state of Rome. And yet, going against every inclination that he has, he sees something so totally different in Jesus. He sees something so totally different in this death. Something that he's, he's never seen in any other crucifixion. And his claim in verse 47 is also another divine event. So not only do we see divinity in the darkness of the sky or the torn temple curtain or the cry 
and breathing his last of, of Jesus, but we see it even in the conversion or the awakening of the centurion. God has worked in this man. And in working in this man, he yields yet another confirmation of what is taking place when Jesus offers up his life. This centurion in verse 47, Luke describes him, I think, very strangely as praising God. I've always found that strange because I, I wonder or have wondered. In this very dark and gross scene where human depravity is at its height. How can God be praised? In fact, I've, I've often wondered from the perspective of this individual, this Roman centurion is likely the one overseeing the crucifixion, giving his approval and ordering his soldiers to, to nail and to string up and to pierce and to break the legs of the others till he's dead. How does the one who's technically responsible for the death of Christ offer praise to God? And the language actually literally says he glorified God. That, that must mean that what he has to say carries so much weight and, and comes from such sincerity from the heart that God is glorified in it. He looks and he says, that centurion glorifies me. What is it that he said? He said, certainly this man, Jesus, was innocent. This is now the fourth explicit time Jesus has been declared innocent. Three times in his trial, and now it is death. But it's more than that. Literally, again, the word should be translated, this man is righteous. This man has done nothing wrong. This man must be who he claimed to be. The, the, the meaning is he's righteous as in he does belong to God. He did come from God. He is the Son of God. This centurion likely knows very little about Jesus and even less about the teachings of Jesus. But he, he knows enough about the claims of Jesus to exemplify at least a form of saving faith at this moment. I believe the man's converted and I believe that's why God is glorified. He sees with simple faith that this is no ordinary death. Jesus is in charge of his own death and God is accomplishing something through him. He is who he claimed to be. So during this gross and difficult spectacle, this centurion has the eyes of his heart open to see the truth. And he, apart from the criminal who is also dying, might be the only one. For even the disciples of Christ don't really believe until the resurrection. Like I said before, everybody around him is filled with 
bitterness and hate and vileness towards Christ and they mock him. We'll only believe in you if you come down from the cross and save yourself. But it's precisely Jesus on the cross that both convinces the criminal and the centurion. And he glorifies God by recognizing that Jesus doesn't deserve to be there. But dies for a whole nother reason. James Edwards said this, this is a short little quote. He said, God is glorified when people recognize his presence and activity in the person and work of Jesus. I'll read that again. God is glorified when people recognize his presence and activity in the person and work of Jesus. That's exactly what the centurion is doing. He's recognizing this is God. And as such, God is glorified. Oh, I've prayed that we would be like the centurion. That we would look and read about the death of Jesus and not just see a familiar tale. Not just get bogged down in details. But that we too would glorify God. That we too would have the eyes of our hearts opened. That we too would see the significance of Jesus laying down his life. Of God confirming that this is a sufficient, satisfactory death. That there is no other need for atonement. Christ has atoned for sin once for all. No, no preacher is perfect. And I know I am far below the standard. But I'm not sure I deserve the blame if we don't respond like the centurion. I think if we can read the account of Christ crucified and not glorify God and not be driven to greater faith and devotion by what is happening here, I'm not sure the fault lies with me so much as it lies with our own hearts. Let us not be callous to Jesus breathing his last. Let us not simply be familiar with it. Let us be moved to adoration that our Savior would so willfully offer his life for us. That our God would so delightfully offer his Son for us. As I said, Jesus is now firmly dead. In verse 50, there's another character who's introduced to the story, a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. He's a member of the council that likely means the Sanhedrin, which means he's a wealthy man. We know that even from the kind of grave that he owns. Uh, He's also an important and powerful man. He is a good and righteous man, according to Luke. He is the only man other than Jesus to receive that description in Luke's gospel. Luke refers to no one other than Christ and Joseph as good and righteous. Verse 51, he doesn't consent to their decision and action. The Sanhedrin religious leaders, he doesn't vote according to their decision. So it wasn't a unanimous decision to crucify Christ. 
He's a man in the minority. He's looking for the kingdom of God. Looking could also be said as long waiting. He's long waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, unlike his contemporaries who are only practicing the Jewish faith for seemingly influence and agenda, Joseph is a man of sincere faith. And he rightly finds his faith fulfilled in Jesus. To the point that verse 52, he's willing to risk everything at this point in time. He's been going against his fellow Jewish leaders, at least not consenting to their actions. Whether he did that publicly or privately, we, we don't really know. But now he's going absolute public with his discipleship, with his following of Jesus. Often, Rome would leave the crucified victims hanging so that critters and birds and animals might come and eat on them and degrade them. And they would leave them hanging until most of their flesh had fallen off. And they did so as a sign and a deterrent to all other criminals and all other acts against Rome. If you don't want to end up like the disgusting crucified, then don't be a criminal. Don't go against Rome. But Joseph has the boldness to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. I'd like to take him down and spare him of that degradation. He's here going against his fellow Jewish countrymen who hate Jesus. He's also being bold enough to ask Pilate for the body of one who was just crucified as an enemy of Rome. Apparently he no longer cares what anyone thinks. And in a noble, honorable task, he takes down Jesus' body in verse 53. He wraps it in a linen shroud. He lays him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. That's the same phrase that's used of the cult of the donkey that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on in the triumphal entry, one in which no one had ever yet set. Now he's in a tomb in which no one had ever yet been laid. Both of them, the, the donkey and the tomb, are set apart for special purposes. Don't um, hold in your mind here the imagery of classical paintings of this scene. There are ample paintings of Christ being lowered from the cross, all of which are very clean and neat and orderly. By the day's end, Joseph is moving very quickly to try to seal off the tomb with Jesus in it before the Sabbath begins. By the day's end, he would be soaked in Jesus' blood. Both physically and spiritually speaking. It was a messy business for him to take Jesus down from the cross. And to do so with great care and delicacy and, and respect. Jesus at this point, his body is a bloody mess. And Joseph jumps right into the middle of it. Luke uses proper grammar and language at the beginning of verse 53, and then he makes it very personal. He says he took it down, the body of Jesus, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and then laid him personal in a tomb. Tells us why Joseph is doing this. 
It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they go back to Jerusalem and getting the, the stuff ready to, to do the real full burial, although they never get the chance. And they rest on the Sabbath. Women play a very crucial, important role in Luke's passion narrative. In fact, they play one of the major roles. And these women here are the only ones who witness all three events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In other words, Luke includes them because their witness testimony is incredibly important. They saw the tomb and how his body was laid. It means they intently looked, they studied how Jesus was buried. Which removes every thought of mistaken identity or mistaken location or a staged event. And they see, they witness, Jesus actually is dead. He hasn't been swapped out. He's not passed out. It's not going to be a resuscitation that they witness. It's a resurrection that they witness. They are credible witnesses. And their testimony is credible. And Luke would have us erase all doubt from their testimony. They have studied and intently looked at how Jesus died and was buried. So that when they see Him resurrect, there will be no mistake. Jesus has literally died and literally given up his life for us. And all the details that Luke includes right here in verses 44 through 56 bear this grand witness to us that his death actually occurred and was divinely orchestrated and confirmed. And we ought to come to the end of it seeing just how much God offered up for us. As I was reflecting on this last night, John 3.16 came into my mind. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him wouldn't die but have eternal life in Him. That verse is only true because of what we read in Luke 23 this morning. God gave up His Son. He literally died. Was actually sealed in a very real tomb. That's the price God is willing to pay for your salvation and redemption. For my salvation and redemption. He desires and he most certainly deserves our faith. And our repentance. And our life. And our devotion. And our passion. And our service. And our worship. Isn't the cross ample evidence of that? Isn't the fact that Jesus would actually, the author of life, the son of God, would actually and literally die in the place of sinners. Isn't that 
ample evidence to say God loves us and wants sinners to repent and be born again and serve Him forever, it most certainly is. It most certainly is. Oh, church, Jesus isn't forced to this grave. He goes there for us willingly, sacrificially, voluntarily. He goes there for us and He goes there for others. We get to rejoice in this gospel message. We get to rejoice in this act of redemption that God accomplished. We come to the crucifixion with a heavy heart knowing that it's our sin that sent Him there. But we walk away with immense joy knowing that it's His love that carried it through. For every sin that you and I have ever committed and ever will commit, Christ breathes His last for. And has the stone rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb for. So that we might be forgiven once and for all. This is marvelous. This is wonderful. And it's also the message that we get to share with others in our lives. There's nobody outside too far for the reach of God's gracious arm. And we can share with people anytime, anywhere, anybody the message that Christ has died for sinners. We've read it. We've studied it. He died that sinners might be born. I hesitated on leaving us here because I don't like leaving us with Christ still in the tomb. And I don't like leaving us with Christ still in the tomb because He doesn't stay there. The very next chapter is really the crescendo of the Gospel. Death isn't the victor. Christ is. He resurrects. But I will stop short so that you may ponder this week Christ in the grave and in pondering Christ in the grave realize the price paid for your salvation the resurrection's coming but not yet let our hearts contemplate Jesus really dying and being buried for us oh father no preacher can do your word justice and for that I'm sorry but you can, your spirit can. Your word is perfect, it's living and active, it goes forth, it accomplishes your purposes, it never returns void, and we believe that. And I believe that in some way it affected somebody for the good today. I believe that in some way your spirit worked in the heart of someone for good today. I pray it's for all of us, you've worked in all of us, to see and behold the beauty of your sacrifice for us. So many want to write off your death as something else. It's important for us to know you literally died. Literally laid down your life. Because in your death we find life. In your death we're born. Jesus, thank you for breathing your last 
Thank You for burying our sin. Thank You for being buried. I pray this would stir up our devotion to You, Father. Lord, our our worship of You, our evangelism, our faith, it would even convert the lost. All for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.